where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain, Michelle. Yep. John and I were just talking about how everyone in radio, everyone in radio should stop talking publicly about how sometimes they get tired and feel like their jobs are hard, except for us. We're justified. That's right. A three-day weekend was greatly welcome. Oh, yes. A four-day weekend would have been more welcome. Right, right. Four-day work week. I really, we talked a little while back about the the great experiment going on in the UK for a four-day week. Which I like very much. In all seriousness, Mm -hmm. four-day work week would be great for everybody. I think I told you, I think I said it on the air. I don't recall now if I did. When I got back from overseas in 1996, I went back to CIA headquarters and uh, was working my normal, you know, job Monday through Friday. And my boss called me into the office and said that he, um, he noticed that I wasn't participating in the four day work week. And I said, I didn't realize we had a four day work week. Wow. Nobody had said anything to me. Yeah. Well, we were all working 10, 11, 12 hour days anyway. Right. So the idea was you work for 10 hour days and you get to take a day off. Right. And uh, everybody had already signed up for either Monday off or Friday off. So I couldn't do one of those, but I chose Wednesday off. And to have a full day in the middle of the week where I could go to the bank and go to the grocery store and go to the CVS or whatever, it was, it was absolutely great rejuvenating. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I did it for two years. Then I transferred into a job where you couldn't take any time off. Uh, but my goodness, what a great idea it was. Having an off schedule, like, uh, you know, if people who have worked nine to fives their entire life don't know the joy of being able to walk around in the ghost town, you know, that is like oh, yeah. CVS at 11 oh, a.m. or something wonderful. like that, or go to, go to the grocery store when no one's there. It's so great. It's so great. And then it you're looking really at everyone is. else going like, what's your deal? Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you doing? What does that guy do for a living? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Malingerers, all of totally us. Totally agree. Except for us. There was a lot that went on over this long weekend, too, and uh, very little of it good. Yeah. Uh, We're going to talk later in the show with some of our guests about uh, the shooting in Highland Park, um, uh, Illinois. You know, I want to say something, too. I'm going to raise it with Dan Kovalik, who we have uh, in the second hour. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've seen on Twitter this morning people saying, well, typical Chicago. Chicago's dangerous. It's like you've never been to Highland Park, have you? Yeah. Because Highland Park is one of the most affluent, one of the most expensive towns in America. It's where Michael Jordan lives. Mm -hmm. It's where Home Alone was filmed and 16 Candles and uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, this is a really, really nice area. It's my impression, I'm going to ask Dan this question, Mm -hmm. that this guy was was a random nut. And, uh, you know, because of the society in which we live, this kind of thing could have happened anywhere. Yeah, it's I'd like my impression also of a lot of the, you know, yeah, there is a lot of gun violence in Chicago. And it seems sure. to be most of it is, you know, people settling uh, personal personal grievances. Yes. Yeah, it has to do with interpersonal grievances and people using violence to settle them. Some of them are probably business related, you know. Right. Uh, it's a sniper. Right. Setting up That's on a different. building to fire into a parade is different. That's, That's not different. happening in Chicago every weekend. That's crazy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the settling of scores you know, between drug gangs or something mm-hmm. like that. Ugh, awful. This was this was an attempt to just murder as many people as possible. Yeah. And did you see I mean, I I, I was going to talk about uh, Joe Biden and Jeff Bezos sort of sniping at each other yeah. over the weekend. But I mean, Joe Biden 
tweeting on the 4th of July. Yeah. Hey, everybody, thumbs up for America. <laughs> our, our best days are ahead of us. You know, we're proud of this part of this nation that's more than a nation. It's an idea. And then just hours later, having to say, uh, Jill and I, our hearts are breaking at the yeah. loss of life in uh, Illinois, and we are going to continue to fight gun violence. I mean, like, you cannot, you, you cannot get more, I think, apt than that. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. You know, another thing, too, is is this constant what what feels to me like constant Biden pandering uh, over gas prices. Doggone it. You better lower your gas prices. Well, we're really hopeful people will lower the gas prices. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. His tweet on Saturday was uh, my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to the, reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now. Yeah, right. This sure. is as embarrassing sure. as Donald Trump just making things up about his crowd sizes or using, you know, hyperbole that even a third year old or third grader would recognize as excessive. Yeah. You know, like, well, America is the, the biggest country in the history of the world or something. And everyone's going, that's not none of that is true. This is also not true. How many times has he done this? Yeah. He's requested like and then he's threatened and then he's requested and then he's threatened. It's it's right. it's really stupid. Do it now or else what? Yeah, or else what? What, what are, are you going to do? do? What are yeah. you going to do? You know, there's a gas station over here by the Watergate. Which is not to say he couldn't do anything. No, no, he just could. Just that he won't. Yeah, he won't. I mean, even even Richard Nixon had the guts to do something and stand up to the big corporations. I mean, it would be great if he would. Maybe, maybe he will. But so far, this is like the third or fourth threat that he's made. Yeah. Finger finger wagging. You better do what I say. Or else. Or, or, else, or else we're all going to think you're not very patriotic as you, you know, pull your piles of money over yes. your head to hide your shame. I yeah. was going to say that this uh, gas station over by the Watergate, mm-hmm. it's a standalone gas station, right? And it's always like a buck and a half more per gallon than any other gas station in DC. Mm-hmm. And I read an article with the owner, uh, an article uh, in the Washington post. Um, it was an interview with the owner and he said, I make my money on um, auto repair, not on gas. He said, I don't even want to sell gas, but I have to because <laughs> it's zoned as a gas station. Wow. So if you want to pay some mafia price for gas, be my guest. I'm happy to take your money, but I'm not lowering my gas price. And I thought, well, okay, well, at least he's honest about it. Uh, Jeff Bezos once again got cranky with Joe Biden. uh, They've got an ongoing feud going on Twitter. It is really. I mean, one, Bezos is also like Biden. These tweets are really stupid, but Jeff Bezos, third richest man in the world. Yep. Coddled, you know, within an inch of his life in this country, right? That bends over backward to ensure that the rich feel no pain ever. Mm -hmm. But this is too much heat for him. So he's got to come back at Biden and say, inflation is far too important for the White House to keep making statements like this. It's either straight ahead misdirection or a deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. I'm going to say it could be both. Yeah. Why not both? Yeah, why not? Right? I don't trust this administration to have much of an understanding of anything. It's a, you know, a, a lack of foresight is really a theme for them. Uh, but that doesn't mean misdirection isn't also at play. That's right. Uh, but so then, of course, you have Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre having to come back and the, reject the criticism from Bezos and say, you know, it's not surprising you think using market power to reap profits at the expense of the American people is the way our economy is supposed to work. It's all Nancy Pelosi clapping her hands sideways mm-hmm. or tearing up a speech or what. It's just like right. government by zinger. Mm-hmm. And it's 
worse than nothing, right? It's yeah. re- it's bad. It's distracting. It's bad. It's not preventing Amazon from exploiting its workers, right? It's not collecting more taxes from Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, watching a little sass from a bunch of very powerful, privileged people. Yeah. I really wish they would stop it. Speaking of which, there was a very interesting article at rawstory.com. Now, Raw Story is pretty much an aggregator. They'll they'll take an interesting story. They'll they'll offer up the first couple of paragraphs. They'll put an inflammatory headline, and uh, that's the end of it. But there was a, a piece over the weekend that I hadn't seen anywhere else where Donald Trump is talking to an associate, right, an mm-hmm. unnamed associate, and he says to the associate, He's telling this associate that he's he's shocked that the that the January 6th committee is going after him. Mm-hmm. And he says, why is it that you guys understand that 50 percent of the time I'm full of it and I'm just joking? Why is it that not everybody understands that? Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, the damage that you have caused the presidency, it's of historic proportions, uh-huh. right? There are going to be future generations studying the rhetoric of Donald Trump mm-hmm. because of the damage that he's caused. And now it's just that it's our fault because we're supposed to realize that when he says the election was stolen from him, he's just joking right. and that he's full of it mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't believe this stuff. It was really I think if people don't know you're if me. people don't know you're joking. Most of the time when you're joking, mm-hmm. I think the problem is with your jokes, which is I not to agree. say there wasn't a really um, joyless and sort of scoldy stream of uh, liberal commentary about Donald Trump that took everything he said absolutely literally right. and would use it to say, Donald Trump's insane. He just said he was a young, virile man. OK, that was clearly <laughs> a joke, right? Sometimes he really clearly was joking. Um, but yeah. You can't if if half the time people aren't understanding your jokes. Well, I don't know, man. Make them different. Yeah. Have a little like air horn or something to, to set off when you make That's a joke, right. or do the little like or a slide bum. whistle or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or just say JK, JK. Right. <laughs> exactly. But like, yeah, you can't go back and be like, oh, I've just been misunderstood forever. You know, another thing uh, that Donald Trump did on July Fourth, uh, that that social media platform that he's using now, the name escapes me. Truth Social. Truth Social. Thank Where you, you don't tweet, you you post truths. Right, right. All day long, all he did was criticize people who used to work for him and call them names. They're liars. They're idiots. I didn't really know them. Uh-huh. They weren't. They didn't have access to me. They're inflating their importance. It's July 4th, man. Yeah. Cook a burger. Enjoy the fireworks. Yeah. It's burger day. What does Donald Trump love more than hamburgers? Go get into it. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, On oil prices, John, did you see that they had uh, collapsed completely? Yeah, Yeah, I I was actually kind of shocked to see the numbers that that were associated with oil prices. U.S. benchmark below 100, uh, Brent crude down at 104, almost 105. But you have uh, predictions that Brent could fall to 65 percent by the end of the year, which seems like. That's a lot. Or not 65 percent, could fall to $65 by the end of the year, which seems like a pretty big fall. Yeah. The other thing, though, is, is that going to make gas cheaper? Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, but we are seeing that, you know, Joe Biden is not entirely he's not wrong 
when he points out that certainly the, these prices don't reflect the prices of the commodity and they are sort of di- diverging steadily. Right. We yes. saw this when we talked about these the reports of uh, the huge profits made by corporations uh, who are using inflation as an excuse. Yes. To just price gouge. So he's not wrong when he says that he's just it's just it's a lot of bluster because there doesn't seem to be anything behind it. So great. Thank you for pointing it out. That doesn't alleviate my suffering or that of anybody else at having to manage these prices. Right. Right. Hey, I've been following uh, the Euro. Uh, Have you straight down, straight down. Mm -hmm. I I subscribe to Barron's as, as you know, and I I really enjoy the coverage that Barron's has uh, on currencies. Barron's is useful. It it really is. I like like it very much. Um, we're almost at parity with mm-hmm. uh, with the euro. It's it's a dollar two point something. Yeah, uh, it was a dollar three last week, and uh, there was a piece in the New York Times this morning saying that things haven't been this cheap for Americans in Europe in a generation. Mm-hmm. It's really quite remarkable. And then there's a side by side story that if you're traveling to Turkey, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. If you're traveling to Turkey, they have 80% inflation. It's the highest that it's been since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And that all the restaurants have replaced their menus with um, menus covered in plastic. So they can change the prices. So every day they can change the prices with a Sharpie and then just wipe them clean at the end of the day. Yeah. That's and not raise a... them again the next day. I don't think good things happen to societies after situations like this. No. I think historically speaking, uh, hyperinflation has been bad. Oh, yes. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. the last time but, there hey, was hyperinflation if you got in Turkey. Dollars, go to Europe. Go to Europe. Yeah. The last time there was hyperinflation in Turkey, they had a military coup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was an interesting piece in the Post today about Turkey saying that there are six million new voters in Turkey, young people who have come of age and can vote. And since they were born, Erdogan has been the president. Mm-hmm. And are they willing to try something new? Or are they the kind of people who are just going to stay at home? You know, being willing to try something new is going to be something of a theme in the next segment that we have coming up. I just also wanted to mention, John, I think we are going to talk about Brittany Griner later also. But yeah, her wife uh, today said that haven't gotten any response from the Biden administration to the, the letter that she knows Brittany sent to them on July 4th. Sherelle Griner saying, haven't heard from him. It's pretty disheartening. Yeah. And I am not I'm not surprised. That is a really a shame. Oh, there was also Terrible. one more story I wanted to mention. I don't think we're going to get into it too much later, but uh, there was an interesting story in Vox about, of course, we we're going to talk about some of the um, updates in the war in Ukraine in this next segment. Uh, but there was a story in Vox, a Vox about the uh, the lobbying, Ukraine lobbying blitz yeah. in Washington. People are making a lot of money. People are making a lot of money. Uh, people are also doing a lot of pro bono work. In the interest of, uh, you know, getting themselves some good PR sure. and making money down the line. Sure. Is everybody doing this work registering as a foreign agent for the Ukrainian yeah. government? Sure no. And so there is a little bit of a scramble. You know, Vox is, is saying, like, they sent a reporter to this particular dinner, asked the PR firm afterward, have you registered? And then, you know, they issue a statement a day later saying, yeah, hey, yeah, we're going to go and do this. Uh-huh. But so it's sort of like, oh, it's only lobbying if you're doing it for an official enemy, right? If you're doing it, if you're doing it for one of America's uh, friends, however temporary that relationship might be totally fine. You're You're just advocating for the good of the world. 
This is is one of those felonies where if they're after you and they want to get you, they'll get you on something like this. Mm -hmm. Because it's quite simple. You either registered or you didn't register. One or the other. There's no gray area there. But you're absolutely right. If you're you're lobbying for um, a friendly country, then you have nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. Tell me, why is APAC, the American-Israel... What's it? What's the? Is it political action? It's not political action committee. It's public affairs uh, committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. American Israel Public Affairs Committee, um, which has Israel in its name, right? Right, and lobbies on behalf of Israel. Why is that not considered to be a foreign lobbying organization? Because Israel's interests are our interests, exactly, John, and our interests are the world's interests. Exactly right. We're going to get into this question. And the question of when will we decide we are willing to try something new uh, with our next guest. So we're going to take a little break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll talk to you guys in just a minute. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're taking a look at some of the more important stories from around the world in this next segment, starting with Ukraine, of course, but I want to talk about some more migrant deaths in North Africa. I want to talk about the U.S. government's conclusions with regard to the death of American citizen Shireen Abu Akla in Palestine, and uh, perhaps talk about what is and isn't going on in Uzbekistan right now. Joining us for all of this is Dr. David Wolalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's a former international security analyst in D.C. and the host of the Geopolitics and Conflict show on YouTube. Dr. Wolalu, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be with you, Michelle. Let's talk about Ukraine. On the ground there, it appears Russia has taken control of all of Luhansk Oblast, which means the next... Uh, I think, you know, territory to control will be all of Donetsk. And recently, we've been talking about this over the last week or so, slowly, slowly, we have been hearing more about Ukrainian losses. Even the New York Times over the weekend shared frustrations from Ukrainians at having their losses and the actual cost of the war downplayed by their leadership for the sake of morale. A Ukrainian journalist and former deputy head of the state film agency of that country wrote on Facebook that something needs to be done about the policy of informing the population. Almost every day we are given weapons, more and more powerful, and the footage shows how they coolly smash the enemy, he wrote. How should we perceive information about our achievements, power, and supply of weapons in the future? Should we read between the lines or take them for their word? Which is frustrating, right? If you can't take your leadership at its word and you have to resort to reading between the lines. And of course, the United States is the main supplier of these weapons and another voice in the chorus that says, don't worry, Kiev is going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And so I'm wondering at this point, David, you know, the U.S., The U.S. was able to say in print that it was winning in Afghanistan for 20 years (laughs) before we abruptly withdrew. And so I wonder what kind of timeline you think we might be looking at in Ukraine. Well, I couldn't agree with you, Mom, Michelle, because you hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, if the population will be taking the leaders at word, if they are saying what they're saying, that basically they are lying. Mm -hmm. That's the 
the bottom line to it. So we all know that the information was coming out or propagated by the West mm-hmm. did not reflect the reality on the ground because there is no uh, victory on part of Ukraine, as they've been claiming, mm-hmm. that we're witnessing a reality before our own eyes that now with the last part of Luhansk under the Russian uh, uh, sort of uh, authority, if you will, that's it. That's the end of the game, because that's, that's what this was all about, which basically, in my opinion, what we will be seeing is by the end of the year, it will be a different map of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And this is what the West was not expecting. So despite what we hear about the uh, advanced weapons being sent or the, to Ukraine in defense of Ukraine and so forth, it's nothing but a hype because the reality on the ground dictates or suggests otherwise. Mm-hmm. The question that many are asking, and, and, and I've, I've looked around in a different parts of the world as far as the research to see whether there are some uh, sort of uh, cool-headed or pragmatic individuals who can come to the reality of what's going on. And the question they are asking is, is Ukraine a failed state? Mm-hmm. As we speak, mm-hmm. oh, uh, because you notice in, I mean, I've noticed because I've been researching that now the population within Europe or Ukraine, they are preferring a settlement mm-hmm. even if Ukraine will lose some territory. Mm-hmm. That's how bad they want the war to end. On the other hand, on the Russian part, Russia wants to achieve its own objective according to what Putin decided on. And this is why I am leaning, as an analyst, I am leaning towards most likely we'll be seeing a different map by the end of the year. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I, I want to get into this. I'm, it's probably it's like shooting fish in a barrel to pull articles from The Atlantic and say, look at this crazy stuff that manages to get printed. But I have to talk about it. It's this story called... Um, America's necessary myth for the world. And this this article is basically about how, okay, yeah, American American exceptionalism is garbage, except that it's also simultaneously true, which is this weird mindset that you can have where you go, ah, yeah, we all know. We all know this is silly, but also it's real. And so as long as you say it's silly, you can sort of continue with this idea uh, that actually it is real and it should govern all of our uh, decisions and all of our foreign policy adventures, because sometimes the results are good, although I'm not quite sure about that. But a, a bone I have to pick in this article is that we're told that, you know, the fate of Ukraine is in American hands, which is, I think, a fair enough assessment to say, looking at the amount of uh, military support that we are giving to that country. And thus... Here's what the article says. Europe is trapped between an immediate calamity on its doorstep and the whims of an unhappy American electorate, which offends me so much as a member of that electorate, because it's it's dismissing the desire of a population to not want to die unnecessarily on their own land because of a lack of insulin, right, or a lack of any social support. And so we are being primed to accept this idea that Ukraine is going to suffer because the American people aren't willing enough to sacrifice. 
right, that we might get tired of seeing billions of dollars go out the door when we there's no political will to use any of that money to improve the lives of people here. Right. And it's just it really disgusts me, especially when you look at you know, how people are suffering as a result of inflation, as a result of uh, artificially high oil prices with a president who spends his time on Twitter scolding oil executives instead of doing anything about it and being told uh, in the end, when there is ultimately a stalemate and a new map of Ukraine, it will be because not every single American, uh, you know, wanted to try to survive on, on food stamps or become homeless so we could, you know, send another billion to Ukraine. And the reality also is that the U.S. is not willing to give Ukraine what it would need to actually win this war if that were even possible. You know what I mean? There would have to be much more dramatic military action taken than the sort of uh, long, slow, horrifying uh, war of attrition that we are happy to to supplement. And so, you know. I really think they tried to do this with Afghanistan as well, right? Toward the end of that war, when when Donald Trump had started talking about withdrawing and Biden wouldn't stop talking about it. And you had all these columnists saying, uh, it's, it, American people have gotten soft. We don't know what the reality of conflict is. That's why they want to end this 20-year this battle. And so I, I want to ask you, David, you know— who does this serve to try to lay the blame for any defeat on the, on the you know at the feet of the American population who just want to be able to maybe buy a house right and live in some comfort and security? Well, the American people are now so so perplexed and confused as to how come we are suffering here mm-hmm. yet just find the policies foreign policy that is. Mm-hmm does not serve the, Amer- the interest of the American people. Mm-hmm. And, and they kind of like, because, you know, let's just be realistic here. Average Joe, average Jane, it does not understand this kind of stuff. Average Joe, average Jane here in the U.S. worries about what's for dinner. You know, mm-hmm. able to have something to eat tonight or not. You know, they're not going to worry about the foreign policy because they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Because the complications of it. So what, what we end up having is we're having a policy, so-called foreign policy, that is geared towards just allocating the resources that ought to be redirected here, mm-hmm. serve American people. Instead, you know, just giving more billions, as you mentioned, uh, Michelle, giving more billions to Ukraine, which we don't even see the results of that. Mm-hmm. even know if the money makes it there or not. Yeah. So why are you... The administration, the policymakers, or whomever, mm-hmm. how are you jeopardizing the welfare of the American people mm-hmm. in return for supporting a policy that is doomed to fail to begin with? Right. And I think that's the important point. It's not like any of this is going to take Ukraine to victory. You know, the weapons we're giving them, that's not going to happen. And so it's it's doomed to fail anyway. So it's just a, it's an enormous waste. No, and because if I use history as my guide, I look at Iraq, I've mm-hmm. been on the ground there, I saw what was going on, I've been on the ground in Afghanistan, I saw what was going on, and it became clear to me back then, at the first year or two, that this war is not winnable. Mm-hmm. We better figure out a way of how to approach it. Mm-hmm. Now, here is the history repeating itself just in a different setting, shall we say. Mm-hmm. To those who say, uh, even though I read some stuff emanating from Washington saying that, well, no, 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 it's the Ukrainians' decision whether they want to negotiate with the Russians or not. Mm-hmm. It's nonsense. Let's be honest about it. You know, one of the problems we have, Michelle, and I hope your listeners truly understand this, is 
We don't want to hear the truth anymore. Some people are not willing to accept the truth anymore. And the truth is, Ukraine cannot and will not be able to negotiate with the Russians without the approval of the United States. Mm. That's just the fait accompli. As to Europe, Europe is weak, is divided. Mm. <laughs> Europe cannot stand on its feet, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. No. And yet, when you think of some of the statements by some EU leaders behind closed doors, they're saying, you know what? At the end of it, Russia will always be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to live with neighboring Russia, whether the Americans want it or not. Right. Yeah. So that, that tells you right there the, the reality versus the policies that emanating from either Brussels or, or, or Washington, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't sort of uh, reflect the truth or the reality on the ground. Yeah. I, this this article was insane to me. I mean, it's it, it, of course it's coming out around uh, around uh, the fourth of July, and it takes this uh, position that just cannot, you know. It, it can't exist, right? It's this position that uh, the American axiom that the U.S. is a force for good in the world and that the U.S. is driven by what's good for everyone, not just itself, and that this sort of circular idea is very useful, um, even as it is also obviously bogus. Right. And so it's sort of like he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we know that this is we know that American exceptionalism true. We know that we're a country just like just like everyone else, except it's also is it is mystically true. And so for that reason, we don't have to, as you just did, David, use history as our guide. Right. Because as long as this supposed, uh, you know, this fallacy that our intentions can never be a threat because we are not imperialist. We can only liberate. We can never, never oppress. As long as that fallacy drives our few foreign policy successes as well as our many failures, uh, then we don't have to sort of examine examine the ro- results of our foreign policy, right? It's it's it, it's wild to me that you can sort of say. Yeah, okay, American exceptionalism exceptionalism is garbage. You're allowed to say that, or you have to. You can say that. And then perpetuate a foreign policy that might as well be identical to to something Mike Pompeo would come up with. And you're okay because you sort of said you you have to now say it's simultaneously true and untrue that America is a force for good in the world. It's bizarre to me. And I, and these are like influential people writing these things. Yeah, that's unfortunate, you know. And this is why I personally see the uh, uh, Russia taking over lands as a, a strong message to the West, uh, sort of letting letting the West know that Russia will forbid <laughs> any, any Western actor from dictating the, uh, the, the orientation, of, if you will, or mm-hmm. the direction of uh, Russia's near broad uh, borders. Mm-hmm. And this is why, once again, I, you know, I'm a student of history. This is why, in my opinion, mm-hmm. each back in 2014, uh, when Putin laid the ground back then in this speech, and I remember this too, the speech in 2014 and the speech in 2007, the Munich or München uh, speech uh, about the security back then. So this is why Russia laid out the ground work for seeking the, this new security and political arrangements mm-hmm. first, in a way like we looked at what happened in Yalta back then. Mm-hmm. So this is, to me, it's another new Yalta, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the purpose for that is for the West to understand that there will be because doing so, in this case, Russia set, uh, sort of uh, uh, put the sticks on the ground by redefining the sphere of its influence. Mm-hmm. And that's common sense 
if we look at the geography of where Russia is vis-a-vis Europe or Eastern Europe then. Yeah, the, the justification for all of this is that, yes, sometimes America makes mistakes, but always with the best of intentions. And without our action, the world would be a more brutal place. And I want to uh, set the stage with that to talk about this next story. I wanted to make sure we talked about the deaths of... Uh, at least 23 migrants in North Africa who died while attempting to cross into the Spanish enclave of Melilla. Uh, at least 23 people were killed as they tried to get past the border with people apparently trying to climb fences that surround the Spanish territory. They were killed by falling. They were crushed as security forces pulled them, pushed them back. They were beaten by security forces. And then migrants and their advocates say the injured and dying were left to lie where they'd fallen with Without getting any medical care. And so, you know, this is the humane world order that we are upholding. And we we had dozens of Central American migrants die in a truck last week. We had 20 people die in the Libyan desert just a few days after that. Now we have this. And it is remarkable to me. It's a, it's a very neat trick that the powers upholding the system have convinced us that literally any other power structure you can imagine would be worse. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about, you know, some of the pressures that might make people do something as dangerous as to try to breach this particular border. And, you know, how it is that we look at this world and go, well, nothing better at all could possibly exist. Well, indeed. I mean, you look at these migrants, basically what they want, they want to just to have a better life. Change of setting, if you will, from wherever they came from. Because apparently the conditions are very, very, very bad. And I had a chance to be in some parts of, this, of, of, of the world, be in Latin America or Africa and so forth. And I saw with my own eyes. I mean, yeah, the way they live. And, and I don't think some majority of us Americans understand how the rest of the world lives. Not everybody lives like we do here. Mm-hmm. It's just common sense. So where it becomes the problem now is whether this Western world stand on its feet by upholding the values that we say, you know, human dignity and so forth. And when you have migrants being, you know, killed, shall we say, or or targeted or left to die because lack of medical care and so forth, that brought now the moral judgment and the consciences of the West, uh, Western ideals, that is, are we truly upholding that or are we justifying or using these values when it suits our policy? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I didn't hear anything European Union said about what took place in, in the Spanish enclave in Melilla. I didn't hear anything coming from the United States regarding that. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of makes me, Canada for that matter, it, it makes me wonder, okay, why are they staying silent on this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, no matter what, oh, any anything you can, else you can imagine, it, it, this is the best we can have. You know, th- this is the less brutal world that our hegemony uh, protects. I also wanted to touch on the the statement issued by journalist Shireen Abu Akhla's family after the U.S. State Department found, hey, guys, what do you know? U.S. State Department couldn't reach any uh, real conclusion about the bullet that killed Shireen and could only say it was likely— Uh, IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, gunfire that killed her. But it definitely wasn't their fault. 
because it was a counterterrorism operation gone wrong and not, as many other investigations have suggested, uh, a pretty targeted killing. Uh, and so the only lesson that the State Department had uh, for both sides going forward was to keep cooperating. Palestine, keep cooperating with your military occupiers. Uh, so uh, Shireen Abu Akhla's family said the State Department's conclusions were frankly insulting to Shireen's memory and ignores the history and context of the brutal and violent nature of what is now the longest military operation in modern history. And I thought that kind of connected some of these themes that we have been uh, referring to, right? The studious disregard for context. So you can see every new crime or every new adventure as completely divorced from the past and totally unpredictable, right? And, and so the U.S. or Israel can say, uh, uh, take our word for it. Our, our motivations are good, so our results will be good and ignore the piles of bodies, please. Yeah, and, and that's not because that brings the question forth is the credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why you wonder why uh, sort of we are not trusted on the global stage mm -hmm. because we say one thing and do another. Yeah, I read the report and it was very like, especially with the word likely. Mm -hmm. Likely. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, as one who's very, very familiar with the Arab culture, that's an insult. Mm -hmm. It's insulting, basically, not only the intelligence of the Arab world per se, but also the integrity of what this is all about. So mm -hmm. I ought to say we stand for justice and support. Then let's be fair. We can't, we can't just be cherry-picking. You know, I understand the, the interest when it comes down to strategic interest and global affairs and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. At the same time, when it comes down to human dignity, you're going to have to stand firm on what your values are or what you believe in and not waver from that. And, and, and this kind of report by the State Department, which we all know the credibility of the State Department itself, mm -hmm. it, it, it's uh, at, a, at a very, very, very low, and I won't take their words on anything. David, I also wondered if you have followed at all these these huge protests over the weekend in Karakal, Pakistan, which is this uh, autonomous region in Uzbekistan, a very big chunk of Uzbekistan, by the way. Um, there were these huge protests over a constitutional reform referendum that would have changed the region's status. Currently, Karakal, Pakistan is referred to as a sovereign republic that has the right to secede from Uzbekistan if its citizens vote for the move in a referendum. And the, the new constitution would not include that language. And the Karakal Paks did not like that. They didn't like having that possibility taken away from them. And the only reason, I mean, not the only reason, but, you know, uh, 18 people are reportedly have reportedly been killed as a result of these protests. More than 500 were detained, though the National Guard says that they have now been released. Uh, the government of Uzbekistan did this sort of typical thing of, um, you know, immediately shutting down Internet services to to the region. Um, but they have also they are going to drop that language from the constitutional reform. And of course, now government authorities are saying this is these are foreign provocateurs. They're trying to steal state, uh, seize state institutions. And I just I wanted to talk about it because I just don't think that there are I don't think there are foreign provocateurs. I don't think they were responsible for the protests in Kazakhstan. I don't think that they are responsible for these protests. I think um, you see a lot in Central Asian history when people try to mess around with your land and your authority over it. Uh, you tend to see huge protests. And so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what's been happening in Uzbekistan. Well, that is a very, uh, that, that, that's a good point, Jeff, because if you know anything about Central Asia, you will understand the history and how it has impacted the trajectory 
of how empires mm-hmm. succeed or fail in maintaining power. Mm-hmm. I spent time in, in Uzbekistan, and back then, not, not, not too long, but back then I had a conversation with the locals, whatever, and it was never an issue. Mm-hmm. It was never an issue for the entire country. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and I did put that possibility of what if. Mm-hmm. But he said, uh, <coughs> he said, no, it's unlikely uh, because we we have so close ties to our land. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like, uh, sort of, wow. Yeah. I was right there, standing on that ground, and hearing it from locals, and, and, and it really gave me the message, the beaming what they said, mm-hmm. they will fight to death to preserve that right for them to hold uh, uh, their right to their, end, uh, to their land. So, mm-hmm. And this is where the idea also where Central Asia comes in, but also because of the geopolitical dynamics that's taking place right now. Yeah. I, does the United States, do Western powers, uh, uh, you know, do they meddle in other countries' politics? Do they ferment, foment uh, insurrection? Absolutely. For sure they do. Are they doing it? it are they sort of the b- black horse in Karakal, Pakistan? I do not think so. Uh, that was international geopolitical consultant, Dr. David Walalu. David, thanks for joining us again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. The Democratic Party is working to throw Green Party candidates for U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, and governorships off the ballot in states where Democrats are competitive. In North Carolina, Green Party Senate candidate Matthew Ho received a series of text messages from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee asking if he would consider removing his signature from his own ballot access petition. And despite having 16,000 confirmed nomination signatures, 2,100 more than the minimum needed to get on the ballot, Ho and every other Green in the state has been thrown off the ballot. Ho maintains that the DSCC and its law firm in North Carolina texted, called, and visited Green Party supporters at their homes to bully them into removing their signatures from the petitions. And in many of the calls, DSCC operatives even identified themselves as members of the Green Party. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. He's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, good to be with you both. Kevin, Matthew Ho uh, is a friend of of ours, of yours and mine and and, uh, Michelle's. Matthew posted on Facebook a series of text messages that he exchanged with a representative of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. This DSEC rep, asked him if he would be willing to remove his signature from the petition that he circulated to get on the ballot. Of course, Matthew said no, but the DSCC rep was persistent, uh, saying that the Green Party uh, hurts Democrats. The next thing he knew, he was off the ballot. Is this the the policy now? Is this what Democrats are doing around the country? Yeah, well, so just let me quickly say something about um, how I know Matthew 
And uh, just to be clear, since uh, you know, we're doing this on Sputnik, and I just want to make sure that Matthew doesn't get any additional problems. And nobody is paying me to come on this show right now. I'm doing this yep. independently as a journalist. Uh, the, anybody at the Elias Law Group or any other Democratic Party-connected firm who wants to say that Matthew Ho's campaign is farming out, uh, trying to solicit coverage of their campaign to take down Democrats. That's just nonsense. Yes. Um, And so I just wanted to make that clear. But I know Matthew because he's a whistleblower um, who blew the whistle, resigned from the State Department during the Afghanistan war. And um, what we're seeing here is clear evidence that the Democratic Party mounted a intimidation campaign against voters through uh, through uh, contacting people who signed petitions. Because for those who don't understand how the two-party system works in the United States, all other parties, unless they have a record as an established party in a state, must obtain a certain number of signatures every single election cycle in order to get on the ballot. And so the Green Party is not recognized in North Carolina as an established party, which means that Matthew had to hire people or find volunteers to go out and get signatures, to gather thousands of signatures. Over 20,000 signatures were collected. The county board recognized that 15 to 16,000 at least uh, were legitimate signatures that they were verified by the county. Now they went to the state board of elections in North Carolina and they conducted their own review. And when they conducted that review, something happened. The Elias Law Group, which is its former partner, Mark Elias, is actually connected to fraudulent misconduct by the Democrats in the 2020 election that was investigated. Uh, They did not bring criminal charges, but uh, he hyped uh, like the Steele dossier and other things Mm -hmm. in order to go after Donald Trump and other uh, Republicans and found that they were helping Democratic Senate Uh, the DSCC, this campaign committee, helping them to contact people and try to get them to remove their names. And they were misrepresenting themselves as people who were from the Green Party and saying saying that they uh, were calling them because they're they're worried that your vote's going to take votes away from Democrats. So do you want to remove their name? And um, I know you have other questions for me, but I just want to get this into our conversation because I think it's important. Um, which is that they they sent a letter to the state board of elections, this law group, which, again, I'm not sure what role they really have to play in this because the state board of elections is going to follow their bureaucratic procedure. And as far as I know, it should not be the case that Democratic or Republican connected firms get to have a say in who gets put on the ballot because mm-hmm. they have an interest in kicking people off. So they they send a message and, and one of their people say that people were given the instructions to not lead with names of Green Party leaders or green ideology. Uh, They were told that they could say they do not have to support our party. Uh, This is when they're getting signatures. They could say don't they they could uh, not lead with ideology. Mm -hmm. They could avoid their ideology if possible. They could say we don't have to say what exactly we have in mind 
uh, when we run our campaign and also avoid specific ideology or policy if possible. Name positive things everyone agrees with. And then this, so, so the reason why they articulate is they say they're actually violating some kind of rule or, or, or law or guideline or whatever because they're misrepresenting the goals or nature of their campaign to voters. And so they're accusing the Green Party of perpetrating a fraud on people who are signing these petitions. And I'll wrap up here, but just the point being that all of this uh, does not seem bad to me. The fact that they're making this, putting this gloss on it that makes it seem like it's it's very mm-hmm. nearly criminal activity on the part of petition gatherers. You are asking people to sign. You are allowed to go out and ask people and say, I want you to sign my petition because I need, because our candidate wants to get on the ballot. And getting person on the ballot does not mean you're voting for that candidate. No. It does not mean you're endorsing that campaign. And actually, what's really obscene about all of this is Matthew Ho doesn't even have access to all of this personal information uh, from uh, from people, meaning he has all these petitions that people sign. They put all these personal details on it. Right. He cannot put them into his database and use them to further his campaign. But yet somehow a Democratic Party consulting firm yeah, yeah. got a hold of all of these records and was mining that personal data. You are exactly right. That is what happened. Is there any way to fight this? You mentioned a moment ago Elias Law Firm, which is a major A-list law firm in North Carolina. It's long associated with the Democratic Party. Certainly third parties, the Greens, the Libertarians, and others don't have the kind of money necessary to retain law law firms like this. Is there anything that the Greens or the Libertarians can do to try to protect their their interests and their ballot access? Well, first, I must tell you that the Libertarian Party candidate is on the ballot. Yes. And they're on the ballot because they don't pose a threat to the Democrats. And the Democrats are playing the system that they've rigged, and they hope in November that the Libertarian candidate takes votes away from the Republican that is running against the Democrats. Now, on the other hand, what happened is they basically baited the Republicans to do what they thought the Republicans would do. And they brought it up for a vote. And they said, we would like to certify Matthew Ho as a Green Party Senate candidate. And when that happened, even though they were planning to table the business and come back to it later, that ended the issue. And they decided that they are not going to give Matthew Ho another shot at getting on the ballot, even though their investigation and all of their unfounded claims about his campaign mm-hmm. were not actually confirmed yet. Uh, they are not done, but they abandoned uh everything because they got what they wanted. The Republicans brought it for a vote. And so they were able to vote it down three to two. Uh, They controlled the state board of elections. And then they were able to deny Matthew Ho access, even though he got all the signatures he was supposed to obtain. There's very little that can be done. I mean, the broader picture is what we need in a state like North Carolina and other states is for people to endorse ranked choice voting. Yes. And ranked choice voting is a way in which you no longer have to tolerate the spoiler nonsense. And everybody gets the votes that they deserve. Nobody's entitled to votes. And you don't have to tolerate or live in a world where uh, Democratic or Republican Party connected firms can game the system, either by manipulating Green Party petition gatherers or uh, Democrats intimidating petition gatherers. And, And then in this system, you get to say, my first choice 
is Matthew Ho. But my second choice, if Matthew Ho does not get enough votes to win, uh, is the Democrat. Or right. you know, maybe you're a Republican and you say, I want the Republican. Or you say, I want the Libertarian if Matthew Ho doesn't win. Right. But you get to have a choice and you don't spoil the outcome, as Democratic establishment figures would say. The Republicans uh, outside of North Carolina are doing this to libertarians. In Texas, the Republicans sued the libertarians saying that they had failed to pay a filing fee uh, and so they shouldn't be on the ballot. The Texas Supreme Court said that the Republicans made the the complaint too late. So the libertarians get to remain on the ballot. But the Democrats in Texas were successful in getting the Greens thrown off the ballot there. Republicans were successful in getting the libertarians thrown off in Iowa and Arizona. Is is there any hope, do you think, for a political David against one of these Goliaths in this country? It seems like the system is pretty well fixed against third parties. You know, it, it so many of, of us believe that mistakenly that, well, if if you're a third party, you can be on the ballot. It's just that nobody votes for you. In fact, the truth is, in many states, um, you're not on the ballot. Yeah, so the culture is already against these parties. So it's kind of amazing that uh, an Elias Law Group or any other firm connect, connected to Democrats would put money into uh, a, 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 an effort like this, given what they've already done. Uh, and I guess what they're doing is counting on that when they contact voters and they ask them to remove their names is you're going to be afraid um, that like you're doing something that is destroying our democracy even though everyone has a choice and i i really don't believe in vote shaming and this is worse than vote shaving shaming it's you know it's actually using your political power to manipulate people into opposing something that i think they actually were open to supporting and it really is impossible for these smaller parties to gain any traction against the democrats or the Republicans, because it is highly manipulative. Uh, they're either going to manipulate your campaign against the Democrats, or uh, if we're talking about uh, Democrats, they're going to try to remove you because they don't want to be accountable. They, you know, what they really yeah. hate the most is that the Green Party. Uh, let's take Matthew Ho's campaign specifically. He's going to run, and he's going to put forth put forth a set of issues that, in some cases, it's a lot like having a primary challenge from a Bernie Sanders Democrat. But in other respects, it's even stronger. It's even more fiercely um, principled. It's even more outspoken on climate. It's even more outspoken on working class issues, working uh, and uh, on foreign policy and ending wars and not being entangled in conflicts. Uh, and so that puts the Democrat in a position where they now have to respond to left opposition, mm -hmm. and they only want to respond to right opposition. Uh, the fringe candidates that they promote in elections are the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Uh, they're the people who actually are uh, very dangerous and toxic, who uh, put out ideas that embolden people who are extremists, uh, even those that might be prone to violence. Mm -hmm. And they'll boost those figures in states across the country this election. But then the fringe candidates that they won't allow on the ballot are people like Matthew Ho, because it actually threatens yeah. their standing 
in, in front of voters, which they basically have a kind of stranglehold. And they've convinced people that they're entitled to these votes. And they game the Board of Elections in states like North Carolina so that the Greens don't have ballot access every cycle. And it's I think it's to the detriment. I mean, we can we're not going to we don't have time to get into it here. But you take any issue, anybody listening right now, you take any issue that is important to you and you assess how Republicans or Democrats are responsible for making it worse. The fact that we have a two-party system means that we're going to stay locked in the status quo of it getting progressively worse every single year. And they keep alternatives off, even though polling shows that 60 to 70 percent of Americans want a third, fourth, fifth or sixth option. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Does any of this, do you think, matter in the end? The Green Party usually gets about one percent. The Libertarians usually get around two percent. Or is it the principle of the thing that Americans deserve to have a choice, even if they choose not to uh, to vote for that candidate. I hear a lot of people say that it's more effective to vote for the lesser of two evils, that your vote is more important. But the lesser of two evils is still evil. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, so I uh, before the Democrats spent all their time on uh, Twitter, uh, the people who are online all the time spent all their time getting worked up over Susan Sarandon or uh, uh, any other figure that they blame on the outcome of the 2016 election, like Vladimir Putin or Julian Assange, whatever their, their favorite boogeyman is of the day. There was an original boogeyman and his name was Ralph Nader and uh, it, it, it put them into fits and he still kind of puts them in fits, but not much anymore because he doesn't run campaigns every four years against the Democratic presidential candidate. But I will say that I learned from him that you're not entitled to votes. Yes. And everyone has everyone has a right to run. We have to think that no no matter what, whether you get one or two percent of the vote, you should run because giving people that option is important. It is. We're totally, totally out of time. It's the top of the hour. Kevin Gastala, journalist, writer for Shatterproof.com. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Another day, another mass shooting. This one was in Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago. Robert Cremo III will be charged today with six counts of murder and likely dozens of counts of attempted murder. He's accused of shooting Independence Day parade attendees with an AK-47 from the roof of a building overlooking the parade. He then made a clean getaway and was arrested last night after police pulled him over in a traffic stop. That's pretty easy, right? But that's not what happened over the weekend in Akron, Ohio. In Akron, police attempted to make a traffic stop on an African-American man by the name of Jalen Walker. He fired a shot at them and took off. After fleeing, he pulled over and ran away from the car, leaving the gun on the back seat. But that didn't stop eight police officers from firing 90 shots at him. They hit him 60 times, not six, 60. 
Protesters took to the streets and more than 50 people were arrested last night. In other news, Brittany Griner wrote a letter to President Biden asking that he do everything possible to have her released from a Russian prison. The January 6th committee said that since Cassidy Hutchinson testified, other Trump White House personnel have been coming out of the woodwork to tell their story. A federal judge ruled that the country's three largest opioid distributors cannot be held liable for West Virginia's opioid crisis. And as of today, police may not pull you over or search you in the state of Virginia just because they smell weed. We're joined by Dan Kovalik. He's a labor attorney, human rights activist, and author, and his latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Hey, let's start with Chicago, and let's begin with some specifics. I'm hearing a lot of people today, especially on Twitter, saying that this mass shooting in Highland Park is typical Chicago. That's what people are saying. In fact, it's not at all typical. Uh, Highland Park is where Michael Jordan lives. It's where Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Risky Business, and Home Alone were filmed. It's one of the wealthiest towns in America. What do we make of this shooting? Is this a random nut? Was this supposed to be some sort of a political statement? Well, I don't know for sure. Uh, It appears from what we know about the shooter is that, you know, there was a picture of him at a Trump rally. So presumably he's a Trump supporter. Uh, I read that there were a number of Mexican-Americans who were uh, victims of the shooting. Oh, boy. so it may tell you something. Um, could it have been racially motivated in that sense? Possibly. Um, but as you say, what we do know, it's not, as you say, so-called typical Chicago. This isn't inner city violence. Uh, this does seem to be some sort of political act. What, what kind it is at this moment, it's hard to tell. It's amazing to me that the police were able to just pull this alleged shooter over in a traffic stop and peaceably cuff him and take him in. So why wasn't he shot uh, 60 times? Well, again, I guess we don't know for sure, but we do know he is white, and we know the guy that was killed in Akron was black. I I presume that, that there's something to do with that. I think there is a racial component uh, to these things, of course. Yeah, I agree. There's a pet peeve that I have that I have to ask you about. The cops keep referring to, and I'm asking you this because you're an attorney. The The cops keep referring to Robert Cremo III as a person of interest. What exactly is a person of interest? How is that different from being a suspect? If he's the suspect, why don't they just say he's the suspect? And I've also heard that person of interest is not really a legal term. It's something that the police have just been using for the last 10 years or so. Can can you explain what that is? Well, generally, a person of interest is something usually less than a suspect. I mean, it could even just be a witness. Uh, It could be it's a generic term for someone who. Uh, has some role or importance in a crime that's been committed. But again, it's something less than a suspect. It seems to be pulling a punch to say that someone is merely a a person of interest. Right. Let's talk about what um, has happened in Akron, Ohio. 
uh, over the past several days. The police chief there has been very careful in his public statements. He's released body camera footage already. He pointedly said that the police there feared for their lives because Jalen Walker fired at them during a chase. But Jalen Walker was running away from the police and still they fired 90 shots at him, hitting him 60 times. How how does a police department approach justifying something like this where where a suspect is running away and still he's shot by eight different policemen? Yeah, I don't think they can justify it. You know, had this happened while he was firing at them. Right. Sure, they'd have some claim to self-defense. But as you say, he was running away from them and they shot him in the back. There really is never a justification for that. Um, At the point where he is obviously not a threat to them, and he wasn't at the time he was running from them, they should not have used lethal force, and in, in, in this case, overwhelming lethal, lethal force to bring him down. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, too, it, this, this kind of thing happens, but some variation of this kind of thing happens in cities all across America. It's not just that this happens in the South. Right. Because they don't like black people in the South or their training isn't as good in the South as it is in the North. That's not the case at all. This kind of thing happens all across America, whether it's, you know, big cities like Baltimore or New York or or Oakland, uh, small towns. It, it happens all over the place. How do you think we begin to address something like this? It's not happening in in other countries. So it seems to me that this has to be an issue of of training and and what police officers are taught to believe is acceptable behavior when trying to take custody of a of a suspect. How how do we begin to address this kind of behavior? Well, I think it it would take a real thorough, you know, reworking of our police systems in the United States, I think this is part of the culture of the police uh, that's very deep-seated. I think there is racism involved. I think that there are a lot of you know right-wing nationalists who are attracted to the police force who, again, have some influence within the police force. Um, so I think, you know, you, you really would almost need to kind of start over, uh, in terms of building the police, you know, in Britain, for the most part, police don't even carry guns. Right. 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 But then they also have more regulations on people carrying guns. And I mean, obviously that could be a nice, you know, start here in the United States. I mean, uh, that. I think we need more gun control uh, to prevent these mass shootings. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, to the extent we get the population to have less arms, I think we should start to disarm the police as well. Like you, I am a supporter of um, of stricter gun control. Uh, But after the Supreme Court's decision last week to strike down New York's concealed carry law, which had been in effect since 1911, by the way, And for good reason, because people were engaged in shootouts at the time that resulted in the deaths of two five-year-olds. That's how this this law came to to be. 
uh, I'm seeing on Twitter now people calling for everybody to be armed, that that's the solution somehow, is that if everybody's armed, then everybody will be a little more reticent to use firearms. Do you see any logic in that argument at all? No, of course not. I mean, first of all, I think what that would mean are more shootouts, more cases in which a quarrel that might result in a bar fight and a few black eyes ends up with people dead, right? Um, And the other thing is people are always going to be outgunned by someone with a, you know, a semi-automatic weapon. You know, the fact someone's carrying a pistol around is not going to protect them from that. So Mm -hmm. I I don't think that is the solution. And I think that's obviously not the solution. And when you look at countries that have less mass shootings, uh, Australia comes to mind. Uh, They they had a big mass shooting, imposed gun control, and they haven't had one since. I think that it's pretty clear that that is the way to go. I mean, you have a country in the United States that on a national and individual level has seems to have decided that all problems have to be settled through violence, right? Right. The U.S. is eternally at war, has been ever since its founding, uh, has basically given up any desire to engage in diplomacy, right? And, and I think that that's true on the individual level as well. You know, you just have a country so committed to violence and that that's what's probably the most troubling uh, to me. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, let's talk for a minute about uh, Brittany Griner. She wrote a letter to President Biden over the weekend asking him to help her. Is there any way that anybody can help her at this point? It seems to me like she's more of a political pawn than anything else. She was caught with a minuscule amount of THC in a vape pen, uh, but she was charged with drug trafficking. Is she more likely to be a part of some future prisoner exchange than she is to be acquitted? acquitted? Is, is there anything that anybody can do to help her? I mean, the answer, I think, is yes. I think, though, it, it would have to begin with the United States and with Joe Biden being willing to talk with their counterparts in Russia, yeah. which never should have ended. I mean, you know, and it never ended during the first Cold War, right? During right. the when the Soviet Union existed, the president of the United States could always pick up the hotline and call the premier of the Soviet Union. And that was a good thing. A lot of terrible things were avoided. That's right. By that. And now we have, you know, a president who's decided that he won't talk to the president of Russia. And that makes it very difficult. But if you started with that inability to talk between those parties, certainly you could help her. Um, And in fact, maybe it's an excuse for Biden to pick up the phone and call Putin. And by the way, I remember reading early on in, 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 you know, uh, when the uh, war started in Ukraine or or morphed into something else in February, because I think it started a long time ago in February. Uh, there were news reports saying Putin was waiting for a call from Biden that never happened. Maybe this is the excuse Biden has to pick up that phone and call Putin and maybe try to settle a lot of problems that the two countries have with each other. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. 
I want to ask you about uh, Julian Assange for a moment. Uh, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador called over the weekend for the U.S. to drop its charges against Julian Assange. That's a pretty big deal for a for a head of state to uh, make a statement like that. Uh, certainly, it was it was welcomed by Julian's uh, family and supporters. But after everything that the U.S. has put into snatching Julian. Um, Will it matter? After all, this is the same government that prepared plans to to kidnap him, excuse me, to to kill him. Uh, they pulled him out of a out of an embassy after after flipping uh, that embassy's uh, government. Is there any reason, do you think, to be hopeful? Well, I, I you know, it's hard to see a lot of hope. I think the fact that that the president of Mexico would say this certainly is important. I don't think it'll be decisive, but I think it makes a difference. Um, I do think the U.S., you know, it is one of these things, you know, be careful what you wish for. I do think the U.S. wants to punish Assange, and they do want to punish him, though, without actually trying him in the United States. And why? Because if they actually have a trial, he's going to be able to call a lot of very important people. And a lot of terrible things about the U.S. are going to come out in yeah. this trial, which the U.S. is aware of. Yeah. So the goal all along has been to simply keep them tied up in the legal system, in jail, um, and hope actually that he perishes in jail before being tried, which, of course, is a incredible violation of everything we understand oh uh, God, in yes. the Western due process. Yeah. Uh, but but I think the hope may be that the closer to trial uh, he gets, the, I think the more reluctant the U.S. will be to bring him to that trial. You know, I'll add, too, that um, he has some of the best lawyers in America working for him in New York and in Washington. And this is not going to be, you know, the the Justice Department's best and brightest going up against some overworked, underpaid, uh, uh, you know, federal. What do you call them? Uh, what's the lawyer? Public the, defender. Public defender. Public thank defender. you. Sorry, I had a mental blank. Public defender. These these are some of the the best legal minds in America, and. It's a slippery slope to charge a foreign national uh, who is a who's a publisher with espionage. It's a slippery slope because then it it opens up every national security journalist in America who's reporting you don't like, who's reporting you can say is based on national defense information uh, to prosecution under the Espionage Act. There was a surprisingly excellent op-ed in the uh, Washington Post over the weekend written by a a British uh, political science professor. And he was saying how the, I've made this point a million times too. The Espionage Act does not mention the words classified information because it was written before the classification system was invented. And so it talks about national defense information. But then if you look at the document, for example, that Reality Winner was convicted of, of releasing, it had nothing whatsoever to do with the national defense. It had to do with politics. Uh, if you look at uh, at the information that Joshua Schulte is accused of of releasing, the Vault 7 uh, documents, that has nothing whatsoever to do with national defense. It has to do with the CIA and computer hacking, 
but it has nothing to do with defense. And he said, look, I'm not an American. I don't know if this is a defense, but this law stinks and somebody needs to do something about it. You know, it was written in 1917 to combat German saboteurs. It was updated in 1950, just after the Rosenbergs were executed. Uh, It was technically tweaked in the mid-1990s, but otherwise, it's never really been updated or rewritten. We never felt like we had to until Barack Obama decided to use it as a cudgel against whistleblowers. So what do you think is next for the Espionage Act? Do you think somebody in Congress will have the guts to uh, to try to update it? Or do you think we're going to finally elect a president that doesn't use it as a weapon like the last three have? Well, no, I fear that it's, if anything, if it were updated at all, it would probably become worse. I mean, I, I, I don't right. see... I don't see this country moving in a progressive uh, direction, you know, for the reasons we've stated. Look at the Supreme Court and what it's doing. It seems that it has and is poised to further just whittle away at our civil rights. Uh, The Democrats do nothing. And the Republicans are very aggressive against civil rights. And I think you're going to have a Republican House and Senate after November. So I, it's hard to be very optimistic that if there's any tweaking, that it will, that it will be to the better. Right. Uh, I want to ask you, actually, before I get to this next question that I've written myself, you're in, you're in Pittsburgh. Uh, you're a, a longtime Pennsylvanian. Certainly you're watching the political races that are taking part in Pennsylvania. There was a police, uh, police, there was a piece in Politico this morning saying that Democrats are genuinely worried about Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee for governor, because he's a Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of true believer. Um, What do the races look like in Pennsylvania? You have that one and you have John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. Uh, The Democrats are going to really need to win both of those races, and especially the Fetterman-Oz race, if they have any hope of hanging on to the Senate. What are your thoughts? Well, it's still a little early to tell. It is. Uh, You know, in Pennsylvania is, you know, a fascinating place, as you know. It uh, is. Because I think you're from Pittsburgh. I am indeed. Uh, uh, What is it? The the humorist uh, who was the head of agriculture in Texas, I forget his name, once said that Texas is Pittsburgh on one end, Philadelphia on the other, and Alabama in the middle. Right. James Carville. And that. Uh, yeah, and that's absolutely true. I mean, and you know that. I mean, even once you leave the city of Pittsburgh, you very quickly get into very red areas. Very you know? red. <laughs> and so it makes the state elections very hard to call. You need huge turnouts in the two cities and maybe in Erie as well right. to, uh, to make up for the rest of the state. You know, so a lot of it's going to be whether there's Democratic enthusiasm. And, you know, I don't know if there's going to be. I mean, if inflation continues the way it is and Biden's poll numbers continue to sag, um, you know, I don't know how um, encouraged people will be to go out to the polls. And I think that, you know, it's really going to come down to that. Yeah. 
I want to ask you next about uh, this ruling by a federal judge on Friday who ruled that the country's largest opioid distributors cannot be held responsible for West Virginia's opioid crisis. West Virginia has the worst opioid problem in America, followed closely by Kentucky, Georgia, and California. What What's the basis of this ruling, and what effect do you think it'll have? Well, I think it's going to be... Uh a bad precedent. Of course, you know, there's precedent going the other way. Um, some, you know, some pharmaceutical companies have been uh, found liable, like Purdue mm-hmm. Farms uh, Pharmaceuticals. Um, but I think that there is a fear amongst the courts that the, you know, these lawsuits could put these companies out of business. Yes. And so they tend to be conservative when it comes to this. Um, but I, and so it may be a sign that, the, that these lawsuits may have, you know, hit a roadblock at this point. Um, and that maybe all that's been done in terms of holding some liable, maybe, you know, all that can be done. Now, again, I think it may take an act of Congress to really do something about that, mm-hmm. but I don't see the Democrats is, is, is really having the motivation to do much before November. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Finally, uh, I want to ask you about Virginia, Uh, at least in Virginia, where as of today, things are changing. The cops cannot stop or detain you just because they smell weed. And if you're carrying between one and four ounces of weed, there's now a $25 ticket, a fine that you pay. Four ounces is a lot of weed. It's, uh, It's no longer a criminal matter. It's civil. It seems to me that states are like dominoes now in either legalizing or decriminalizing recreational uh, marijuana. But the federal government isn't budging. And Joe Biden has always been opposed to removing marijuana from the federal schedule. I want to ask if you see that changing. But I want to add, too, and I've said this on the show a million times, I'm addicted to the the 1960s show Dragnet. I love it. I watch it every single day. I DVR it. And it's so much fun because it's such a commentary on society and how society has changed. And and it's like every show, every episode is about marijuana, that marijuana is the fuse, heroin is the is the bomb, and and what is it, the explosion? LSD is the explosion. You know, I'm listening to I'm listening to a podcast of that book that uh, kids all read and that I must have read it in the 80s. Remember Go Ask Alice? Sure. That book? Yeah. So in that book, the protagonist, which, you know, is not a diary written by a teenager, um, but she first tries LSD, then does like cocaine, then does heroin, but it's marijuana that really sends her down a dark path. Oh, it's my hilarious. God. Yeah. Oh, my and, God. It's totally, the gateway. It's yes. the gateway. Yeah, the gateway. That yeah. was the view. And, and yeah. here we are in 2022, and Joe Biden is still saying that marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, the, it's like the country is going to leave him behind because even states like Oklahoma and Kansas have dispensaries now you can just walk in and buy and buy weed. Uh, it is. It's It's amazing. Uh, but do you, do you see at the federal level this eventually changing? And if the answer is yes, do you see it changing under a president, Joe Biden? I think it's going to have to change. I think the culture's changed in the way that you said. No one thinks marijuana is a problem anymore. And 
private companies are now making a lot of money on it and have the potential to make a lot more. So eventually it's going to have to become totally decriminalized. Uh, whether it'll happen under Biden, again, I doubt it only because I, I don't think anything's going to happen under Biden. You got a president who's you know born in antebellum times. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's just a matter of time. And I think, you know, what, what is going to happen is the federal government the FBI are just are not going to be aggressively going after people for marijuana, particularly in states uh, that have legalized it. I don't think there's any uh, taste out there uh, amongst law enforcement to deal with marijuana anymore. And I hope, though, that all the people sitting in the can right now with marijuana charges are released because it yeah. is now uh, basically... Uh, you know, a recreational, you know, drug like alcohol is. Now. I hope you're right. I think that uh, that it's it's good that the times are changing. I, I just watched an episode of Dragnet uh, over the over the weekend. It was a young couple. They were in their 20s. They have a three year old daughter and uh, they had a pot party. And because everybody was, quote, high and far out. Right. They were all high and far out. Sounds like a great party. They had forgotten that they put their three year old in the bathtub and they were smoking marijuana cigarettes and she drowned in there. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so the husband was uh, prosecuted, uh, even though the wife was the one that put her in the in the bathtub. The wife was sent to a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, times have changed. You had that movie, of course, Reefer Madness. Right. No, I mean, it, uh, times have very much changed. And again, I no one views marijuana the way they used to, even as I was growing up in the 70s. You know, it was, it right. was pretty vilified, and oh, that's yeah. just not the case anymore. Dan Kovalik, we are always happy to have you. Dan is a labor attorney, human rights activist, and author. His latest book is called Cancel This Book. The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are uh, looking a little bit more at the Supreme Court's decision to limit the authority of the EPA. And we are also looking at the Biden administration's plans for oil and gas leasing on federal lands for the next five years. Joining us for this look back and look forward is Tina Landis. She's an environmental and social activist, and she's the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Thanks for joining us again, Tina. Thanks for having me. Just to start off and sort of set the stage here, I wanted to get your response to the Supreme Court's ruling last week on the power that the EPA has or rather does not have to adopt rules that are transformational to the economy unless they are specifically authorized by Congress. And in this case, the Supreme Court said you can't do that. Uh, these rules had to do with carbon emissions, but the decision will have wider implications. And, you know, 
to me, this is a great illustration of the reality, uh, you know, the, the conclusion that we come to all the time here, that the climate crisis is a political crisis, because putting Congress in charge of this wouldn't be such a problem if we didn't have the Congress that we do. And I don't mean, you know, the 117th Congress or the 118th Congress, but the entire process by which people attain and then hold on to power. And I mean... I know there are also other issues with this ruling and with constantly kicking power back to the legislature, but but that jumped out at me. And so I, I wanted to just get your response to that ruling and what you think it's going to mean. Yeah. So the ruling specifically blocks the EPA from regulating CO2 emissions from power plants through like a national regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, it can still address, it basically forces them to now address power plant CO2 emissions like plant by plant. Right very cumbersome and very costly um, to address these issues. And it really, it's a way for big coal to protect themselves because the trend, this, this regulation on CO2 emissions would mean the demise of coal, the dirtiest plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but it potentially does undermine future regulations that, that sort of have these sweeping, um, tr- possibly transform- transform- transformative changes mm-hmm. in a certain um, sector. It could be problematic um, moving along, but, you know, even before this ruling, the U.S. was far, far from meeting its goal, its emission reduction goals, mm-hmm. and so it's just one more chipping away at, at regulatory powers, but, you know, we were already missing the mark. And the, and the big problem is, you know, they're using this major questions doctrine, which really allows the court to block any federal regulatory body that they deem to to, to be overstepping. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like it puts the Supreme Court, this unelected body of lawyers mm-hmm. who and judges are who are who are not science, don't have any scientific training or public health training. Mm-hmm. It supersedes the the regulatory bodies that do have the expertise, mm-hmm. and, you know, to solve the power of the Supreme Court. And but really, you know, the government, the Democrats have other options besides going through the EPA, which is which is really not the most effective and rapid way to address climate change, mm-hmm. which is very urgent. Um, you know, they could they could undo the filibuster. <laughs> so they yeah. Democratic the Democrats could actually pass legislation um, directly. They could Biden could declare a climate emergency, which would unlock billions of dollars annually mm-hmm. to climate change. There are, they have a lot of other options, but you know, I feel I feel like in one way the Democrats are sort of like they did with the Roe v. Wade uh, ruling is like they're just throwing up their hands, like our hands are tied, we we can't do anything about this, mm-hmm. or an excuse for their inaction mm-hmm. on climate change as opposed to, you know, a real step back. I think that's a good point. It it will be easy. And I would expect to see people uh, saying, well, this is this is Trump's fault, right? This is Trump's fault because and, you know, by extension, this is the fault of you lazy voters uh, allowing this monster three Supreme Court nominations and acting like, uh, you know, everything was perfect until then. And now Donald Trump is why we are getting climate change. Um, so I, I also wanted to ask, you know, you listed a number of ways the administration could respond to the ruling. What have we seen from them in response? I mean, the White House statement was, you know, more empty platitudes about, you know, we want to protect air air quality and address pollution and climate change and, you know, all these things, um, but with no concrete plan how to move forward. Which, what the problem is to begin with, I mean, Biden's Build Back Better plan, even though it did have some climate actions, really didn't lay out a clear path forward of how to actually achieve emission reduction. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's it's really vague. And the EPA, I mean, the EPA came out saying like they do they do have other mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they can still address other greenhouse gases from from power plants and other sectors. They can address and regulate other pollutants from power plants that it will, in the end, you know, phase out coal mm-hmm. because they can address it in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and states can states can set their own regulations on power plants, which you know, oftentimes, like California, has stricter regulations than the EPA. So there are other avenues mm-hmm. to move forward, and that's what the EPA is saying that they will find other ways to address these issues, um, these climate issues. Since you mentioned, uh, you know, Joe Biden's promises to reduce carbon emissions, the promise was to reduce them by 50 percent this decade. You said the Build Back Better plan had had a little bit in it about climate, but not much. And I'm wondering, you know, we we just saw uh, with COP22, which was what, in January? I don't even remember. Earlier this year, we saw a lot of people make a lot of very big promises that made very big headlines um, but they're eventually going to need to to start taking some action to achieve those pledges. And I just wonder, you know, are, are we seeing any? Are we seeing any from the White House? Uh, are we seeing any, you know, big movements even from from outside the U.S. to come close to making good on any of those promises? Yeah, I mean, as far as from the capitalist governments, and particularly the U.S., no, mm-hmm. there, there's not enough action. In fact, Biden, you know, the, the climate summit was in November. Mm-hmm. Before the climate summit, he was meeting with OPEC leaders, telling them to ramp up oil production. And then the week after, he opened up the largest oil and gas lease auction mm-hmm. in U.S. history. And then, you know, he's reopening now. Last week, reopened. Uh, he had said in an executive order when he first came into office, "I'm going to end. I'm going to halt That's leases funny. on federal lands for oil and gas drilling." Just had another sale last week for oil and gas drilling on federal lands. I mean. These things, he, he's, he, it's, he's really not serious about that. Right, right. And it's all just empty platitudes to appease the voters um, because we're really, the, the U.N. says we're on track for three degrees Celsius warming when you count for all the oil and gas production that's planned already. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's a disastrous course we're on. And really, the capitalist governments in particular aren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. China, on the other hand, is like the largest producer of solar and wind power. Three times the gigawatt capacity is in the U.S. They're making major reductions in particulate matter pollution um, in Beijing and surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are actually, you know, doing a lot more because they have control. The government has control over industry directly, so they can make these wide-sweeping changes that, under a capitalist government, you're you're you can sure that the yeah you have to make sure that the corporations are still making profits along the way so it's all a negotiation and tweaking things here and there but right. no you can't make any transformate transformative changes yep. and of course i was cop 26 but i can't remember the name of that conference because nothing meaningful came out of it anyway so why bother um let's also talk about this this uh, extraction plan that the administration has put forth uh, the new york times writes that by law the department of the interior is required to issue a plan for new oil and gas leases in federal waters every 5 years which was uh, news to me the plan would block new leases in the Atlantic, Pacific, and the Arctic Oceans, but it might allow new lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska. Uh, it, it puts forth several options, including holding no lease sales at all. I wonder what chances you think that has. Uh, but there's also the potential for 10 sales in the western and central Gulf of Mexico and one off south-central Alaska. And no one seems very happy with this plan. I always wonder, when you read about this, 
if this is just sort of cover for the oil industry and actually they're they're happy enough, right? But if you read the reports, you know, uh, at least according to the Times, the oil industry, of course, wants to be able to lease more and climate activists don't want to contemplate more extractive projects. And so what do you, what is this plan? I mean, this is this is a, a proposal that is put forth for now 90 days of public comments, and then we'll see what happens in the end. Uh, but I wonder if you think it's worse than you expected, if, you know, maybe this is about as good as we can do right now. What do you think? Yeah, it's not really surprising because the U.S. is just kind of going forward with business as usual. But mm-hmm. just to say, like, the, the lease option they did, they did have back in November, mm-hmm. that got held up by a federal judge who said there wasn't um, a review of the climate impacts of those oil and gas lease sales. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of back and forth, and there's a lot of pressure by a lot of environmental groups, really, that are pressuring these judges to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. This up. So it's it's hard to tell if this will actually result in actual drilling. Another thing is half of half of the the leases that have already been sold are sitting idle and they have been for a long time. Mm-hmm. I feel like the oil and gas industry just like gobbles up these leases when they can just to, you know, ensure profits in the future for their investors. Mm-hmm. But they may or may not ever drill. Um yeah, it's still not a good thing. And we, we should be going in the opposite direction. Well, and also, wasn't Joe Biden just saying a, a couple of weeks ago that he wants to impose fines on companies that are just sitting on on uh, land that's been leased for extraction and not using it? Because, of course, you know, uh, that was supposed to be some him him looking as though he cares about uh, how much people are paying for gas right now. And so, you know, yeah, you, you have these companies, obviously, despite their sort of lip service to being green, you know, Chevron's now green, Exxon's now green. We're looking forward to a renewable energy future. But yeah, of course, we are going to uh, try and pocket all of these leases anytime we can, because you know our intention is just to keep making money on oil until the planet explodes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's like I don't, anything Biden says, it's like he, he's saying to just appease the public. And he's also making these backroom deals with the fossil fuel corporations. I mean, he, he had the second largest campaign donations from fossil fuel corporations next to Trump. He is not a friend of the planet. He's not a friend of the people. Mm-hmm. He's really just, you know, another corporate representative. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you to, to comment on, you know, the, the whole conversation around oil prices, oil and gas drilling and gasoline prices, because quite clearly more drilling, you know, planned for the future is not going to be an immediate solution to high gas prices. Uh, But as John and I were also talking about, you know, gasoline prices are, of course, related to the price of oil, but it's not as though they, they rise and fall necessarily in tandem, or as we were saying earlier, that they haven't been kind of diverting as companies realize they can make more and more profit. The price of oil goes down, who cares? Um, and so, you know, I wanted to ask, all of that having been said, it, 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 Americans are still suffering because they're, the cost of gasoline eats into the amount of money they're making. But really, if what people are mad about is not the price of gas, but their ability to pay for it, I'm wondering what you would like to see from the Biden administration other than Joe Biden, you know, scolding oil companies either on Twitter or, or from a podium, right? If, if, you know, if the solution is not to keep gasoline artificially cheap, there have to be other ways of of alleviating people's sort of negative experiences right now as as gas prices and inflation overtake their paychecks. Right. And just to frame it, like the, the fossil fuel corporations are the ones who are raising the prices mm-hmm. at the pump. It's not some like, you know, 
it's just a natural process that happens. Inflation right. that because of the profits that the companies want to make, and they're trying to make up for the downturn they had in, in 2020 from COVID. Um, but yeah, the Biden administration could one, you could set price controls on these corporations so they can't continue to raise prices. That would stop inflation. Nixon did it. Mm-hmm. Was not a progressive president, um, and. The Biden administration could also raise the minimum wage to be actually a living wage nationally. I mean, there are many, many things that could be done to 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 ease the burden on the working class mm-hmm. of inflationary costs of everything right now. Um, but yeah, they're they're really not doing anything sufficient <laughs> to protect people. It's really you know, and they're really I feel like not doing a very good job of pushing back on this idea that uh, you know more drilling. More drilling is good for the working class and opposing it, you know, this sort of right wing talking point of opposing more drilling is is saying you want people to be poor. You know, I think the Biden administration, uh, if they were, uh, I think, effective communicators would be trying to push back on that a little bit. And yet you just sort of see nothing. You see sort of doing one thing with your right hand and one thing with your left hand and not not really appealing to anybody. Right. I mean, really, the whole issue of climate change, I mean, it shows they they don't care about the majority of the people who are already suffering under these disasters that are happening and, you know, food prices going up and all these things. Heat waves, they're killing hundreds of people every year. A hundred people in the U.S. die every year from heat waves. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many things that they're falling far short of addressing and really nothing to protect the people from what's already unfolding, much less aggressively addressing, you know, reversing climate change, which science shows we can do, but there's no political will Mm -hmm. actually take the action. I also wanted to just ask you uh, how California is doing in the midst of this fire season. I haven't heard any, uh, I haven't heard of any like huge fires so far, which seems like a little bit of relief. Yeah, cross my fingers. There, there haven't been huge fires breaking out. There was one this weekend that's still 0% contained. We'll see how big that one gets. But, um, yeah, we've been pretty lucky this year so far. The drought is still a huge, huge impact. Water shortages, you know, in lots of areas, mm-hmm. um, more rural areas. And, and the fire season goes till November. So yes. we'll see how, how it turns out. <laughs> Right, exactly. That was Tina Landis. She's an author. She's an environmental and social activist. Tina, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find more of your work? Yeah, actually, I'm going to be speaking in D.C. um, at an event on July 22nd at the Justice Center. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm on a national speaking tour right now um, for the Climate Solutions book I wrote. Mm -hmm. Me out at that event, and you can also find the tour schedule and get a copy of the book at liberationnews.org. And that is Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, everybody. Go and look it up. Tina, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou with a few last headlines. And John, I can't believe we forgot to mention this one at the beginning of the show, but did you see there was a wave of concern across some corners of the internet that uh, with the Large Hadron Collider starting up again today? Dang it. How did we miss that? How did we miss that? Yeah, so today the world was supposed to end. A huge black hole. I totally forgot. Suck us all into it. Yeah, I know. 
should have, yeah. you know, yeah, it's going to make a joke about, you know, putting on clean underwear or whatever when you get sucked into the black hole. But. You know, my mom told me one time when she was a little girl, mm-hmm. um, she had heard from some from the, new, the local newspaper in Warren, Ohio, that uh, the world was supposed to end because uh, some evangelist said so. And she said she must have been eight or nine. So this would have been 1948 or 1949. And she had eight brothers and sisters. And she said they all sat on the front porch and waited for the world to end. And then after a while, they just got up and went inside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's still running. So I guess there's still there's still the possibility. It had been shut down for maintenance for the last uh, three years. But we're still smashing, you know, smashing atoms into each other at really high speed to look, look for dark matter and antimatter. Or or try to understand it more. I don't understand those things. I I, I don't either. I gather. I'm still struggling over cold fusion. There's a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, matter, confusing enough. Don't make it dark. (laughs) 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 Sorry to the people who uh, I guess were disappointed at the world not ending when they started that big machine up again. (laughs) Um, Also, this is some research out of Tufts University. Okay. found that only... 7% of U.S. adults have good cardiometabolic health. Yikes. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, Less than 7% have what experts consider good cardiometabolic health. Uh, The study looked, uh, this Tufts University study um, defined cardiometabolic health as having five key components. Blood pressure, blood sugar, blood cholesterol, adiposity, which is being overweight or not, uh, and the presence or absence of cardiovascular disease. It looks at information on 55,000 people over 20 years old. So a a lot of people. Yeah, 6.8% reached optimum levels of health in all five categories in 2018. Also found American health has been in steep decline over the last 20 years, which I think is probably just visible walking through an airport. Oh, man. Yeah. Kind of a bummer. In 1999, one in in three adults had healthy levels for adiposity, meaning they had a healthy weight and weren't overweight or obese. By 2018, that number was just one in four. One in four Americans are at a healthy weight. I'm screwed on this whole thing, so I'm not even going to (laughs) comment. No, also, so three to five people did not have diabetes or pre-diabetes in 1999. The three to five did not. By 2018, more than 60% of U.S. adults had either diabetes or prediabetes. That's a lot. More than 60% of the population is huge. Do you remember the children's animated movie, WALL-E? It was a big hit. I've never seen it. uh, 15 years ago. I remember it, yeah. Everybody had left Earth because we had polluted it, Mm -hmm. and they were living on these spaceships in total luxury. But they were all, um, they had all gotten so fat that their bones couldn't hold their weight. Yeah. Like everybody was diabetic and everybody, you you could just like get out of your floating chair and just barely make it to a, a bed or something. Uh, it doesn't yeah, that's sound, how we're all headed. Doesn't sound great. Yeah. It's that's not, it, not good. Yeah. Not I mean, good at all. I will say also like some of this stuff about the way they measure obesity like bmi yeah that's stuff. it's it, ridiculous it is really ridiculous yeah. yeah i mean sometimes you know by i think by some bmi measurements it's like i'm kind of close to the top that's and listen ridiculous. if i <laughs> got a problem with my weight that is ridiculous i feel like your your measurement might be unrealistic but yeah uh that was sort of scary scary study there man happy fourth of july everybody
We're going to talk about this tomorrow, mm-hmm. but there there's a major development in the UK. The the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the equivalent of the US Treasury Secretary, and the Secretary for Health and Social Services have both resigned bringing uh Boris Johnson to the brink of of a governmental collapse. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about it in more detail tomorrow. It just happened a moment ago. Um, and this comes on the heels of the deputy, the deputy chief whip. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see if I can find the, uh, the quote. It was, a, it, it, the deputy chief whip went to a party. Here it is. Uh, this is a guy named Chris Pincher. Is the, it party gate again? It's kind of a party. Oh, gate. No. He resigned Thursday night. Uh, because Wednesday night he had gone to a dinner and got really, really drunk and groped the breasts of two women who were at the party. What is wrong with these people? Yeah. And then he says, uh, while not admitting the allegations directly, he said, uh, last night I drank far too much and I embarrassed myself and other people. Oh, man. (laughs) So they've got some serious problems over there in the UK right now. Yeah. Yeah. I will say also, it is nice to know that anytime I might drink too much, which isn't that often these days, but, uh, you know, no, nobody except the people around me, usually at the one neighborhood bar, ever, <laughs> ever see what I've done. But I'm also not going around groping people because I think I wouldn't no. be welcome there exactly. for very long if that's what happened when I had, you know, one more drink than I should have. Yeah, it, I've never groped anyone. On the topic of things that uh, we might be talking about a lot more in the future, a couple weeks back, Uh, We were talking to one of our guests, Robert Hockett, uh, about some labor issues, and we mentioned that, you know, in the pipeline was this contract covering uh, 22,000 West Coast dock workers at 29 ports up and down the West Coast. So that's Washington, Oregon, and California. Uh, Their contract expired on Friday. They are all still working. The union has said this is the contract for the International Longshore and Warehouse uh, Workers Union. Uh, They said on Friday, you know, the cargo will keep moving. Normal operations will continue at the ports until an agreement can be reached. So they are now, you know, working as negotiations continue on their next contract. And I gather that this is not unusual. You know, like as soon as the contract expires, if negotiations are underway, it's not like everybody puts their tools down and goes home. Mm -hmm. But... This could be, you know, this could turn into a a labor fight that has enormous implications, right? This is not like—I mean, it's great. I think the first uh, Apple store in Maryland unionized or something very recently. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But the impacts of this would be felt immediately. I feel like we're on the brink of something Mm -hmm. Mm labor-wise in this country. Mm -hmm. And I mean— They're going to turn it around. Maybe. And uh, let's hope that they get a contract that they all feel good about. And we don't have any massive labor dis, uh, disruption. But, you know, I, I I was reminded of this because a Washington Post opinion piece says, you know, Joe Biden, Joe Biden could have to uh, weigh in on a, a labor fight here uh, that is going to be really meaningful for these 22,000 workers. But also if, if they decide to sort of exercise their collective power, if they cannot get an agreement that they think is worth it. Right. That's only going to exacerbate the supply chain issues that people still haven't like still haven't gotten resolved. Yes. I will support them and in going for that because you know, sure. what's, what's the point of collection act collective action if it doesn't. Yeah. Cause any, you know, if it doesn't have any um, result. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So interesting headlines to watch there. Uh, yeah. There is another story here in the Daily Mail. Did you see this? 
I don't think I looked at the <laughs> Daily Mail today. Did you see it? I'm not going to give you any other clue. Uh, it's about Adolf Eichmann. Oh, no. It's about these Eichmann tapes. I guess they have finally gotten. So I guess transcripts of these tapes of conversations he had while he was in Argentina mm-hmm. with a Dutch uh, Holocaust denier uh, or, you know, someone who was a, was a defender of, of Nazis who also went on to apparently do PR for uh, Pinochet. Oh, Chile. my God. Um, so, you know, one of a one of America's friends, one of Milton Friedman's homeboys. Uh, he he did a series of interviews with Eichmann in Buenos Aires in 1957. Um, transcripts of those interviews made it to Eichmann's trial in Israel in 1962. But I think the Israeli Supreme Court ended up not using them because they had been sort of edited. But now for the first time, actual audio recordings yeah. of Eichmann talking about, uh, you know, and and uh, admitting to having orchestrated, oh, yeah. uh, you know, this, the, the, the massive execution program of Jews in uh, Germany. Yeah, I see that. Have here. been released to the public. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. If we had killed 10.3 million Jews, I would say with satisfaction, good. We destroyed an enemy. Yeah, I mean, it's wow. pretty grim. He did also, you know, of course, it's relevant because he tried to defend himself by, you know, doing the old, oh, I wasn't just a, following orders. Just following orders. Yeah. I was just a cog in a machine. I didn't have any great, you know, I, I took no great part in this, et cetera. And so you can. Right. Listen to the man uh, say otherwise if you want to now. Yeah, it says here that he admitted to devising the final solution. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Pretty, yeah. I wonder what took so long. I think it was uh, the uh, people didn't want to sell. Like that, there was some, the, the Daily Mail article has a sort of breakdown of who, who got these tapes and where they went. The I owner see. then taped over quite a lot of it what? at some point someone who i think that it was probably the guy himself who taped over it because oh, it you know says, it's pretty right. incriminating it, it says here 70 hours of interviews mm-hmm. of which only 15 hours survive yeah. yeah wow and this was 60 years ago yeah. 1962 is when he was executed mm-hmm. it was 65 years ago that the tapes were made mm-hmm. wow right and then on a final note, uh, speaking of monsters, this is one of a lesser sort, but a uh, South African wildlife trophy hunter who regularly yeah. posted photos of himself with the bodies of lions, elephants, and giraffes that he'd killed has himself been killed. Mm-hmm. And while I certainly would not advocate for anyone to do that to uh, these trophy hunters, am I sad? Am I sad that this guy apparently got uh, shot in his truck at the outside of a, a national park in South Africa? Absolutely not. This is a vice story on this guy. Did it say how he got shot? Like, I would have expected him to be mauled by a lion or something like that, but he was shot. No, it looks like uh, local reports here cited by Vice say he was found lying with his face up and it looks like he was killed shortly after he stopped on the side of the road after his car overheated. Oh, it looks like another car pulled up alongside him and then shot him at close range and stole his gun. So nothing to indicate that it had anything to do with his hunting. Sure. Bandits. Um, That happens all the time. Whatever. See you in hell, buddy. Uh, That's all we've got time for today. I want to say thanks to all of our guests and, of course, thanks to the producers and engineers who make the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 